Well, finally, we're ready to start on Isaiah. <laughs> it's taken a while. And we still have a little bit of introductory stuff to deal with, partly because Isaiah is an important book in biblical studies, uh, not only important to us spiritually, but it's kind of a linchpin of uh, scholarly work on the Old Testament. So I've, I've got to say a few things about the uh, authorship and date of the book. So we'll, we'll start with that and go as far as we can with it. Um, I'm dating the book between uh, 740 and 681 BC. Uh, traditionally, uh, Isaiah lived into the kingship of King Manasseh. Uh, had a long, apparently, according to tradition, a long life in ministry and was martyred under Manasseh. Um, Manasseh's, I, I forget how 681 fits into Manasseh's reign, but it's uh, related in some way to his reign. And so um, the book of Isaiah would have been uh, given and written sometime in this period. Um, this is the uh, Dead Sea Scroll, the big Isaiah scroll, of, uh, and it's virtually complete. It's just, it's, and it's very legible. Um, so it's one of the more amazing things. The only differences between um, that text and the one I use at school every day is just difference in spelling conventions and a few other things. It's, it, and it's a thousand years older than the oldest manuscript we had up until 1947. <laughs> is, is this the scroll that was found by that boy? Well, yeah, yeah, it's in that cave. Uh, it's called Cave One, and there were um, some, some really important manuscripts in that cave. So um, uh, the rest of the manuscripts are little tiny fragments and so on, but this one is virtually complete. It was a very important scroll to the Essene people at Qumran and fascinating in that regard. Um, the author I take to be Isaiah of Jerusalem, but this is disputed because ancient people are stupid. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, this is, I, um, I don't know what else to say except that it is the common approach in Old Testament scholarship that if, uh, if I can't see how something fits together, it obviously is a contradiction. And so, since I can't see, because I am a European, amen? And uh, being European and uh, having a doctorate, <laughs> uh, I am able to see what ancient people couldn't see. There were contradictions and there were unevennesses in the thing. And especially, there are certain things that, that you need to be aware of. One of them is the evangelical approach is this is Isaiah of Jerusalem sometime around 700 BC. But the general scholarly approach says there are three Isaiahs. Not, not to say that there was an Isaiah in three different generations. It's to say that there's an author who contributed to the book of Gen. What happened? Get the hints. There's, there's an author who contributed to the book of Isaiah in three different generations. One is Isaiah of Jerusalem sometime around 700 BC and roughly chapters three to 35 are the contribution of first Isaiah. Second Isaiah came along in uh, around 536 BC and they know that because, turn to Isaiah 44, um, in Isaiah 44, verse 27 and going on into chapter 45 is an important passage for this, this uh, issue. 
God is speaking here in verse 27, and he says, It is I who says to the deep of the sea, Be dried up, I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And, the de and he declares of Jerusalem, She will be rebuilt, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. Are you with me here? Uh, Isaiah of Jerusalem couldn't possibly have known about Cyrus in 700 BC. Amen? But ancient people are stupid and they thought that, that there was a prediction here. But, but you and I know that you can't predict the future. My favorite professor said, you can't fool all the people all the time, but weathermen come close. <laughs> so even the weatherman, uh, I, have, I, I ran across a cartoon years and years ago of a uh, weatherman. It was just one, one, one picture. The weatherman is there joyously pointing at sunshine on the, on the, mat, on the uh, uh, map that's going to go out on the screen and a family coming in with their picnic gear all drenched in water and they said it's, it's 10 percenting outside. <laughs> uh, uh, since you can't predict the future, uh, and, uh, then it's not possible for Isaiah in the 8th century BC to know about Cyrus in the 6th century, so that places this Second portion, Isaiah 40 to 55, in the uh, Babylonian captivity, and Cyrus comes on the throne. This this date's a little late, frankly. It probably would be 539 or 540 uh, would be a more accurate date for this view. But they're predicting what they now can extrapolate from present events to the outcome of um, history. So you get a second Isaiah, who is largely Isaiah 40 to 55, and then you have third Isaiah. They, of course, you can't just say that in biblical scholarship. You have to say it well. <laughs> so there's Isaiah, Deutero Isaiah, and Trito Isaiah. <laughs> so you use a little Latin and it spices everything up. But, but um, the, uh, so third Isaiah begins in 56 and goes to 66, roughly, and, and in 3rd Isaiah, you're dealing with Babylon, the, the returnees from Babylonian captivity. So this has to be sometime mid-4th century, or perhaps early 5th century uh, BC, I'm um, sorry, late 5th century BC. So a date here for, for 80 would be a rough date for 3rd Isaiah. Uh, the reasons for this approach are, I, I have to do this for every book of the Bible, almost. And every time I do this, uh, Paul didn't write 2 Timothy. Okay? We know that because vocabulary, style, and theology are different. Are you with me here? In every book of the Bible, every, everybody, every claim that's made for authorship has been disputed by somebody because the essence of getting a doctorate is, is doing something new that nobody else has ever done. So more important is creativity and originality than truth <laughs> to getting a doctorate. So, so you don't have to say anything true, you just have to say it very, very well and defend it. So, um, so uh, the vocabulary is different. Well look folks, do you still use the same vocabulary that you did when you were in 12th grade? 
Not entirely. A lot of it, yes. Mother, I wrote a paper in 12th grade that Mother typed for me. And she said, told me years later, she said, as I was typing that paper, I was getting a little angry at you. I said, why? She said, you were using vocabulary I didn't know you knew. She said, I didn't even understand some of the words. I thought, gee, he's been talking down to me all these years. Well, I, I was in fourth year Latin, and we talked about chiasmus and synecdoche. And, yeah. How often do you talk about chiasmus and synecdoche to your mother? You know, the, the context in which you're speaking, the subject matter you're speaking about, determines in some measure the, the nature of the vocabulary you use. And furthermore, life experience does as well. So assuming that tradition is right about Isaiah living well into the or so, in, into some part of Manasseh's reign, he, he has a 60-year ministry. There's a good chance over 60 years you might change some of the ways you say things. Does that make sense? So that there would be differences in vocabulary and style would be, assum would be assumed. Yes, sir? Yes, and, and Isaiah may well as well. Uh, so having somebody who's writing for him, uh, and what we know about that process suggests that sometimes the, the scribe was given more leeway and sometimes given less. And so what does that do? Um, uh, I think it's Second Peter, no, it's First Peter that talks about, is it Sylvanus? In, in 1 Peter chapter 5, who says, I also wrote the letter in the Lord. Um, uh, how much leeway did, did Peter give Sylvanus in putting that together? Because really, the Greek of 1 Peter and the Greek of 2 Peter are really significantly different. But that may well be the influence of the scribe on 1 Peter, for example. Uh, so vocabulary style and uh, then the mention of Cyrus in 44.26 and 45.1, uh, emphasis on the Babylonian captivity. Isaiah lives in the 8th century BC. They don't go into Babylonian captivity and the earliest is 605. Yes? So how can he possibly know about the Babylonian captivity? There's an old joke. I've told it to you before. Um, so it, it'll be okay if you just kind of groan a little bit because you've heard it before. But it's the joke of the gray squirrel. I'm sorry, it's a joke about the, um, the uh, Noah's flood. I got the wrong story. Noah's flood. Uh, fellow was, fellow was yeah. driving. Yes, that, that was funny. <laughs> fellow was driving home from Sunday school one Sunday morning, had his son in the car with him. He said, what did you talk about Sunday school today? And the kid said, oh, we talked about Noah's flood. His dad said, you don't sound too impressed. No, the boy said, I, don't, I, I can't believe there was a year-long worldwide flood that wiped out the whole human race. And his father said, well, son, don't you think if God wanted to, he could do that? The kid said, well, if you're going to bring God into it, I can believe anything. <laughs> oh, thank you. That was even better than I dreamed. <laughs> uh, the, the point is, um, the assumption of Old Testament scholarship, by and large, is that we have a deistic God. We have a God who sets the world in motion, who kind of in general intends to bring things all to, to some kind of uh, resolution at some point, but he's not much involved in the world. 
And if that's your God, then I would agree, yeah, this couldn't be by Isaiah of Jerusalem. But if, if I have a God who controls history, and one of, the, one, one of the amazing things that we'll see much later in Isaiah in chapters 41 to 48 is that, that God doesn't argue that, the, that, that deity exists. The Bible never, never argues that point. It simply assumes it. Everybody in the Bible assumes that. Even atheists assume that in the Bible. Uh, what, what he does argue for, though, is his right to be called God. And one of the evidences for his right to be called God is that he's the Lord of history. He has created history, and, he's, and, he's re, and he has predicted the future long in the past, as he says, so that you could not say, my idols did it. Are you with me here? So, so they're undercut, the, the, the scholarship is undercutting the very message of the book. So either the book... Either the book has a credible message or it has an, a non-credible message. We shouldn't even pay attention to it. So if God didn't predict anything in the past, then I have no reason to believe the book of Isaiah. Uh, so um, the emphasis on the Babylonian captivity, expectation of a glorious re a return from captivity. But where is that glorious return? A few thousand... Israelites returned, um, three groups returned, one fairly large, but two very small, and the majority of Jews stayed in captivity. They stayed in exile from the land, and so um, they began to, um, the, the Assyrians began to settle Jewish people in Turkey in the 6th century B.C., uh, in the 7th century B.C. Are you with me here? It's astonishing, and and they have spread throughout the earth. Um, fellow, two two friends were sitting in a in a Chinese cafe, and, and they said, "You know, I wonder, do, are there any Jews in China?" And the other guy said, "I don't know." So their waiter came and he said, hey, I, "I've got a question, my friend and I. We've been talking about. Do you have any Chinese Jews?" And he said, "I'd be I'd be right back." And when he came back, he said, "No." We got orange juice, but we got no Chinese juice. So, so the, the problem of communication cross-culturally is, is difficult. Uh, uh, but, but there are Jews all over, and there are actually monuments in China of Jewish communities and ancient Christian communities. Amazingly enough, in the area of Beijing, there's a monument to very ancient uh, communities of Christians living in, in China, of all places. Say again? Who's, who's speaking? Raise your hand. Oh, thank you. I didn't know where it was. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was thinking they were Nestorians, but that, I wasn't confident of that, so I didn't try to say more than I knew. Yeah. Pardon? Is it? Okay. Well, friends who have been to Beijing have gone to see that, so I assumed it was near, but hey, it's just next to it. <laughs> Look at it on the map. It's just that far apart. <laughs> so... Uh, we we got to get back to seriousness here. Um, the book has a three-part structure. In fact, uh, if you... Yes, Fred? Jim, when you get in, into any one of the three parts, is it likely that he sat down and wrote it all at once, or is it a series? It's more likely, in my opinion, it's more likely that he spoke these things over many years and eventually gathered them together and put them in some sort of order. So if there was going to be a book of Swindoll, it might have a message from 19... Uh-huh, yeah, 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 and, and in no necessary chronological order. Uh, so if you, 
if you read through chapters 1 to 5, you have no historical references, but beginning in chapter 6 and going through 12, you have historical references. So there are places where Isaiah gives us some indication of date, and then much of it he doesn't give us any indication of date. So we just have to work with the material as it comes. Yes? You were talking about he was uh, predicting Cyrus 200 years before. Yes. But he also was predicting Christ. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. However, Jesus, you, you have to understand about Jesus. Okay? He carried a pack of manuscripts around on his back every day, and he was looking busily through them. What do I have to fulfill today? What? So, just, they have these strange, strange notions about what uh, prophecy means and so on. Um, we're, we're going to take a, a, a very normal uh, historical Christian view of this and not go into all this other stuff. I'm just going to leave it aside. All we'll say about this is, is what we're saying this morning. Uh, there are actually two structures that are proposed for the book. Uh, one that I have a number of friends at the seminary who use, and it's like the one we just saw. Uh, so 1 to, 1 to 40, 1 to 39, 40 to 55, 56 to 66. And the argument is 56 to 66 is looking at the return from Babylonian captivity. There's only one problem with that. I've got to illustrate it. I'll turn to Isaiah 56. It may actually be in 57. Um, Yeah, it's in 57.3. Here he, presumably, according to the hypothesis, is talking to people who've returned from Babylonian captivity. What's the one thing Israel learned in the Babylonian captivity, spiritually? No more idols. So why does 3rd Isaiah say this? Come here, you sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulteress and a prostitute. Against whom do you jest? And so on. Um, Verse 4 continues, Are you not children of rebellion, offspring of deceit, who inflame yourselves among the oaks under, the, under every luxuriant tree, who slaughter the children in the ravines under the clefts of the crags? This is not the only reference. There are one or two others like this. If they learn not to practice idolatry, why is he challenging them about their idolatry after the Babylonian captivity? My point of view is that they did learn to get rid of the worst forms of idolatry, but they didn't get rid of all idolatry. They substituted an idolatry for the law. And um, so uh, I, my, my own view is that the whole book is written for the people of Isaiah's day, namely 8th century. And he's warning them about the future, but giving them hope also about the future. So, that, so both are going on in this, in this book. Um, so I follow an, an older structure, three-part structure, um, which is prophecies of punishment and blessing, focusing on the threat from Assyria that we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, that's 1 to 35. Then I have a, a hinge passage, uh, what I call conclusion and introduction. <laughs> so, so in, verses, in chapters 30, 
36 and 37, you have a conclusion to the Assyrian threat. So King Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sorry, King um, uh, Shalmaneser is camped outside of Jerusalem. He sends his uh, lieutenant, the Rabshakeh, the, the marshaller of the host, to warn Hezekiah. Actually, he, the king is down at Lachish, uh, doing, uh, carrying out a siege of Lachish, but he's warning them against what God's going to do and, and ridicules God. So God <laughs> brings the terrible plague on the, on the camp of the Assyrians and the army is decimated and left uh, completely unable to continue its, its uh, mission. So they all go back home and Sennacherib eventually dies in, in Nineveh. Um, so you're, you're getting rid of the Assyrian threat in chapters 36 and 37. That concludes chapters 1 to 35. Does that make sense? But this is historical. This is, a, this is narrative. It's not prophetic oracles like we have in chapters 1 to 35. And so it, it needs to be treated as separate um, for understanding. But 38 and 39 are the same thing, but now, how does Babylon get into the picture? Well, Hezekiah, this, this marvelous man who did so many wonderful things, does something I don't understand. This is just incomprehensible. Anybody could reason this way. He gets sick, prays, the Lord heals him, uh, and he rejoices over that. Then, embassy comes from Babylon to see, to, to congratulate him, actually to recruit him to be part of a coalition against the Assyrians. And he's so excited because Babylon's like Rome in our day. It is a, a seat of learning. It's a seat of, of, of uh, religion, um, has a lot of prestige, but not a lot of political and military power. Does that make sense to you? Yes? All right. So, so Babylon was like that in, in Isaiah's day. And Isaiah's just, boy, Babylon's sent emissaries to me, man. And he shows them everything in his house. And God says to um, Hezekiah, what did they see? He said, I showed them everything in their, my house. God says, okay, then everything, that, everything they've seen is going to be carried off with all your sons to Babylon and captivity. And, um, and, I, and Hezekiah says, well, at least it'll be good in my day. What kind of thinking is that? I'm, I'm, I'm glad my, I'm not going to suffer all this. My kids are going to have hey, no, no sweat off my brow. So, just inconceivable. Yes, sir? Do you think the sickness happened then before the actual fall of the, the army there in the plague? I think so. Uh, in, in Second Kings, these stories are referred to in, in, in reverse order. So it, it appears, and there are some indications within the passage that the illness comes first, but Isaiah has rearranged, rearranged them because 1 to 35 is about the Assyrian threat. Uh, 40 to 66 is about the Babylonian threat. And I take it that there are three books of comfort. Notice, it to turn to Isaiah 40. Uh, you know this passage well, uh, and some of you will know it better from Handel's Messiah than from the Bible. <laughs> Comfort ye. I won't sing it anymore. I have a good voice. I just tear it up getting it out. So, <laughs> uh, comfort, oh comfort my people, says the Lord. Um, speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended. Notice the word comfort there. 
This, this, this is the source of calling Isaiah 40 to 66 the book or books of comfort. Look, though, at chapter 48, at the last verse for a moment. And the last verse of 48 says, There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Now look at the end of chapter 57. Can't make my fingers turn the pages. Verse 21, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now turn to chapter 66, the very end of the book. And this is most unusual. This is, this, what we're about to see never happens in any other prophet of Scripture as far as I'm aware. This is unique. Uh, so Isaiah 66 ends with four paragraphs. I just... This morning, I, I was thinking about chapter 1, and I thought, chapter 1's doing the same thing that chapter 66 does, but it, rever it reverses. Isaiah 66 reverses chapter 1. And here, there are two passages of salvation, and there are two, two passages of judgment, but look especially at the last one, verse 25. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an, an abhorrence to all mankind. Does that sound like there is no peace, says my God to the wicked? So that, that's a refrain, and, and, and people who teach about discovering structures in literature say if you find a refrain, this is a very important factor. You need to pay attention to it. So I conclude. That, one, uh, that 41 to 48, or 40 to 48, is the first book of comfort. 49 to 57 is the second book of comfort. And 58 to 66 is the third book of comfort. We'll talk about those much later when we get to that point. Uh, there are some crucial themes in the book of Isaiah that you need to be aware of. One of which is the fate of Jerusalem and Zion. Um, Jerusalem and Zion are interchangeable terms, more or less. Zion can be a very broad term, including all the nation of Israel, all the people of Israel, or it may be only limited to one of the mountains in, in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, but the, the fate of Jerusalem is central. Jerusalem, as we start the story, is in danger because of its own sin, and it gets worse until Hezekiah's day, and then it starts to slip again after Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, little hope in Josiah, but not much. Uh, as good a king as Josiah was, the people never followed him. Generally speaking, the people followed the kings in Israel, or in, Jeru in Judah, but not for Josiah. They didn't follow him. They, they maintained their commitment to idolatry. And so when his sons um, uh, succeeded him, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, um, uh, Zedekiah, there's a fourth one, can't think of his name. Uh, when they succeeded him, uh, everything went down fast in just a matter of years from that point to the final destruction of Jerusalem. He died about, I forget the year. Uh, Daryl, do you happen to remember when Josiah died? Okay, I don't either. Um, but it's in the late 7th century BC, and it's uh, only 
25, 30 years till the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple and the national life of Israel permanently. Would you like me to ask Siri? <laughs> no, because he'll answer and we'll, it'll disturb the whole. <laughs> uh, so the fate of Jerusalem is central. The book starts with warning of severe judgment in light of already experienced judgment. And the book ends with nothing but hope and glory and, and delight for Jerusalem. The, there is the, yes, sir? When you, when you read the word, the fate of Jerusalem, mm -hmm. okay, in the context, uh, is he talking about immediate Jerusalem or future Jerusalem? Uh, well, and it's like, if they go clear into revelations, like uh, well, he, in, in terms of the of the way Isaiah develops the concept, it's Jerusalem in Judah. Current. Well, it's going to be Jerusalem in Judah. Jerusalem's only been in one place in all of history, so uh, that's where it will always be. Uh, the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem coming out down out of heaven from God. <laughs> Um, is a development of that, but Isaiah is thinking about the Jerusalem in Judah. Okay. Right. Then there's the threat from Assyria, and chapters 1 to 35 are filled with this threat from, from Assyria. They are terrified of Assyria, and there are reasons for being terrified of Assyria. What has, what, what has not worked, though, is that they fear Assyria and not the Lord. <laughs> and so, if you fear the Lord, there's nothing to fear in Assyria. But if, they, if you fear Assyria and not the Lord, you're in real trouble. Uh, so the threat from Assyria. Third, uh, third, the deliverance from Babylonian captivity. They're going to go into captivity. Manasseh, at some point it would be worth reading uh, the account of this period if you've not already done it. And I asked you to do this a few weeks ago. But you might want to go back and reread uh, the account of Manasseh's reign. Um, uh, the, prom the, the, the promise that Jerusalem would fall to Babylon had already been given, but there was still room for repentance. But with Manasseh's reign, all that is gone. Manasseh is such a wicked man, such a wicked king, that God said, I'm going to destroy it. Uh, Ezekiel, who is contemporary um, with Jeremiah, he their 6th century, uh, uh, Isaiah is 8th century BC. Ezekiel says if Daniel, Noah, and who's there, and Job would pray for this people, I still wouldn't. All they would do is they'd deliver themselves. They would not deliver the city. Its, it's judgment has now been fixed as of the reign of Manasseh. Then there's a messianic hope. And almost from the beginning, not quite, but almost from the beginning of Isaiah, there is... Isaiah never overtly says what he's talking about. But there is some agent or agency that's coming that's going to mean deliverance for Israel. He never overtly says it. One of the good commentaries on the book of Isaiah is by a man named uh, J. Alec Motier. Um, he has a marvelous approach to this. He, he kind of envisions the book, uh, or Isaiah, receiving these messages from God and thinking, Lord, who are you talking about? And God says, just listen. But, but, but Lord, who is it? Ah, ah, I know who it is. It's going to be Hezekiah. And then Hezekiah doesn't work out. And I say, oh, who is this? Cyrus? 
coming up with these hypotheses about who the delivering agent is, and God keeps giving more information, but none of the hypotheses fits the information. And so by the end of the book of Isaiah, you're pondering, well, who, who is this? Uh, are, you, are you with me here? So um, you and I know because we have much more revelation than Isaiah had. Uh, you and I know who this man, who this saving agent is. Yes? Um, we're smarter. We're smarter. <laughs> Ancient people are stupid. Thank you. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so in a broad sense, we can talk about a messianic hope in the book of Isaiah. The word of Messiah, as far as I know, I haven't actually checked to see if this is the case, but my impression is the word Messiah doesn't occur except in non-technical senses in the book of Isaiah. That's the only possibility that I know. Messiah is a king. The Messiah is a servant. How can Messiah be a king? Well, um, for, for unto us a son is born. <laughs> a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Yes? And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be uh, marvelous counselor. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. You got it. I, I, I can't get it out. Uh, but, but if he's a king, how can he be a servant? Um, and if he's a servant, how can he be an anointed con uh, conqueror? There it is. Anointed it does show up in that context. That's in Isaiah 45. Um, so, so I've got these pieces of information that are hard to put together if you don't have the first century to, to draw on for understanding. Then there is the, the emphasis on both the concept of creation and history, and God not only creates the world, but he creates history. Uh, history itself is God's creation. Uh, and in that respect, folks, if you do something creative, <laughs> how, how would you do, <laughs> Jan knows some other things about that from what I've said, but, um, if you do something creative, there are, there are various things that you know about that creative piece. If you just, let's say you're paint, doing a painting, but you don't put all the color, the final color on all at once, right? You layer it in order to get texture. I'm, I'm, I'm talking like I know what I'm talking about, but, um, but you, you layer it and you put texture in and and you mix the colors, yes? Are you with me here? Uh, so if you just took all the layers of color off the painting and laid them out schematically as they go into the painting, what would you see? A mess. A mess. So you've, you've seen that um, embroidery that we saw in uh, uh, Corey Ten Boom's kitchen uh, um, some years ago. It has, they, they have it in a double-sided frame with glass on both sides, and as you walk into the kitchen, this horrible embroidery is, <laughs> is hanging there, and they talk about the way we experience what, what Chuck mentioned this morning in the middle of the problems we face. All we see is the storm. We don't see the outcome or what the storm's accomplishing. We don't see any of the benefits that God is bringing through this event. So I see only the back of the, of the embroidery, and it's all the loose ends and no pattern at all, but you turn it around and it's a beautiful crown. Uh, so uh, what, we, what, 
what we see in history is disparate events with no particular pattern. But one of the things God does in inspiring a biblical author to write is to show the pattern. He turns the thing around so that the author can see what's going on. And then the author comes and tells us. And we think, oh, well, that's just typology. No, it's not just typology. It's history. It's the way God views history. God is putting into this history a pattern that we can't see until we are alerted to the pattern by the divinely inspired authors. Does this make sense to you? So I've got both creation and history. We can see the beauty in creation. It's hard to see the beauty in history. Yes? Uh, if I look back at history, I see atrocities and I see oppression and I see slavery and I see, yes? But where's, where's the pattern? I, I can begin to see it when I start learning how to think historically from the biblical writers. Um, there is also New Exodus and typology. In Isaiah 41, he, he, and he starts to talk about, and it's 41, 42, 43, I forget how far it goes, maybe 44, but he talks about an Exodus that he wants Israel to forget, and in, the, and in another Exodus, he wants them to start looking forward to. Uh, you will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. But you will say, as the Lord lives, who brought us back from all the nations of the earth. Are you with me? And he describes the new salvation in terms of the old salvation because he's showing the pattern. Are you with me here? The old pattern, I will make streams in the desert, rivers in the, in the, in the wasteland. Do you remember this? Uh, the, the, the animals will rejoice. Well, what is he talking about? That's what he did in the old Exodus. So why should it be different in the new? Um, so several uh, themes that are important. There is, uh, this is an attempt at a message. How do you summarize 66 chapters in one sentence? <laughs> but this is the best I can do at it at this point. I changed this yesterday because I thought, mm, I need to make a, a revision in it. Um, Yahweh, the great king, the book is about the Lord. It's not about Israel. It's not about us. It's about the Lord. Yahweh, the great king, and that's, this, that's his status. He is the great king. And if I forget that, he's God, and that's true, but that's inherent in the name Yahweh. What's not inherent in our thinking is the kingship of God. He is the king is asserting and establishing his righteous rule over the earth. Folks, God is king of the earth, but the earth is in open rebellion against him. Yes? So, the judgments that are coming, the um, visitations that are coming, are the ways of bringing judgment into, the, into this rebellious world. We're not waiting for God to become king. He is king. Yes? It just doesn't seem like it sometimes. If God's really in control, why is this place in such a mess? Because one of his goals is to show how wicked sin really is. And in order to see how wicked sin really is, he has to give it some free reign to go do, what, do its job. So, He's going to let sin flower 
and when it flowers to its full, it's going to bring final judgment and, 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 and root sin out of the world and reestablish his overt rule, not just his Im implicit rule, but his overt rule over the earth. So he is asserting and establishing his righteous rule over the earth, beginning with Israel, as Paul says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But this was Genesis. It's a blessing for the, the seed of Abraham, so that in the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth may be blessed. Are you with me here? Well, we got Jesus, that's all. No, no, no. The nations are not now blessed. We're waiting for that. Um, uh, through the judgment that leads to the restoration of divine order on the earth under his anointed king. So this is the best I can do to summarize the message of, of Isaiah. I no doubt have left some things out, but that's still, uh, still a, a step in the right direction. Yes? Could you say that statement would be equivalent to what he said in Genesis when it says, I, I'm going to bruise his head? Yeah, to some degree. Yeah. Um, chapters 1 to 35 are the obviously the starting point. We're, here is the structure as I understand it. In 1 to 12, you have prophecies concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Then in 13 to 23, a fascinating passage. It's, uh, it's, it's, we're not going to go in detail through it, but it's uh, uh, oracles against the foreign nations. Who Israel either fears or trusts. And just add that to, the, to that point, and that would make it more accurate. Then 24 to 27 is Isaiah's apocalypse. This is very much like the book of Revelation. There is cosmological language. It's, just, it's grand language in that passage. 28 to 35 then are judgment and salvation. So you'll have uh, seven, seven or six oracles of, of judgment coming and then hope at the end. I said to you the ending of Isaiah is unique. Uh, it ends with judgment. Nearly, as far as I'm aware, every other prophet ends with a message of salvation. Isaiah is the only one that ends with a message of judgment. But, turn back, and we'll finish with this this morning. Turn back to Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1 ends with an offer of salvation and uh, a threat of judgment. So, um, 27... Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. But her transgressors and sinners will be crushed together and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired and you will be embarrassed at the gardens that you have chosen for you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away or as a garden that has no water, the strong man will become tender. His work also a spark. They shall both burn together, and there will be none to quench them. But he's talking about Jerusalem here. Yes? He offers them salvation. He promises them salvation in the future, but judgment for sinners in Israel. Isaiah 66 ends with salvation and judgment, but the salvation is for the people of faith, and judgment is for rebels against God, and not just in Israel, but all the earth. So when God judges the nations and their sinfulness, he is delivering the believers into hope. Are you with me? So what I have in chapter 1 focused on Israel. 
and chapter 66 focuses on salvation of the whole human race through the judgment of the wicked. Now let's close with prayer. Father, this has been a very brief overview of the book of Isaiah, but maybe you will begin to use even this to help us keep track of where we are in the book, but also to understand your words, what, what you're saying to us, how you want us to respond and, and think about the book of Isaiah. So grant us that we may grow and uh, become deeply um, touched by the message that you have given to this great prophet of yours. Thank you that you are king. Thank you that you have not abdicated your throne and that the days of judgment are not an indication that you have left the throne, but they are an, they are an indication that even then you are doing justice in this world. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.